All right, here we go in three, two, one. Have you ever wondered if long COVID is real? Have you seen the hashtags and said, are they just out of shape or is this actually something serious? Do I need to learn more about this? How can I deal with this? Am I struggling with it? Uh, well, I've actually had some questions. I've never tested positive for COVID, but I mean, after a friend of mine was exposed and then I felt sick the next few days and I tested negative, I was just really struggled to run or do anything athletic. And I'm just like, huh, this is really interesting because I've seen my friend Daria talking about long COVID for almost two years. Well, actually just, just recently, two years, she's had COVID and been dealing with symptoms from COVID for two years. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash long COVID. And Daria Oler has been on the podcast many times before. And over the last two years, she's chronicled on social media, her stories, her experience of long COVID. And she is joining today to continue the conversation as we discuss with athletic trainers. She's presented recently at the San Diego Pain Summit and athletic trainers, uh, of New Jersey Athletic Trainer Society of New Jersey, uh, talking about long COVID and the effects there and what she's learned and what we need to know as athletic trainers. So, Daria, welcome back. And again, uh, congratulations on making progress or um, benefiting society with your struggles. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always a good conversation. So one of the big things is um, I'm sure you've heard, Daria, you're just out of shape. You're just oh, yeah. deconditioned, right? So you just got sick and then just never really got back in shape. So we're going to cover that. But let's start with a, a working definition of long COVID. What, how would you define that? Yeah. Or how is that being defined in the medical community? Yeah, so there isn't one set formal definition yet. And it will kind of depend on where you look. Like from the World Health Organization, their definition as of October says that if you have symptoms after a COVID infection, and it can be confirmed or not confirmed, um, that are at least three months past that initial infection, and that can include the big symptoms are fatigue, which is crippling fatigue, um, breathlessness and brain fog. Those are a couple of the big ones they talk about. But then we also know from the CDC, they're saying it could be you're seeing a change in symptoms. So you can either have like this new symptom onset of symptoms you've never had before. You can see kind of like you, maybe you had a condition a really long time ago, like a good example is asthma. And all of a sudden you're like, this is back. I haven't dealt with this for a long time. Or maybe it's a chronic condition you've had ongoing and things have worsened because long COVID seems to be kind of um, causing that to happen too. So it's the general thing is that, you know, you had a known or unknown, which is fun, COVID infection. And then there's just these symptoms that continue. And, there, and we don't necessarily know why it happens yet. Um, some of the working theories are there could be a viral persistence, which means your body never fully cleared the virus and there's still some lingering in there. And that's a theory, maybe why, we don't know, maybe why the vaccine seems to temporarily help some people. There's a theory it could be autoimmune related and you're producing autoantibodies, which aren't great. Um, there could be a reactivation of a past virus. Like the most common one being studied now is Epstein-Barr, which like 90% of people have had. So we don't know um, exactly why it's happening or who's likely to get it, but it's just, it seems like you have a COVID infection and then you have these symptoms that continue on. <laughs> I guess even as just part of the conversation, that's what we need to know is there's not a clear cut. Okay. Yes. You tested positive. No, it's, you know, and, and here in the secondary setting, we get kids that don't tell us because if test positive, then they have to, you know, stay at home for five days and then they miss sports for another five days. And then they have to go through reconditioning pro periods. Oh, they're like, no, I was just absent or I just didn't test, you know? So it's, it's a challenging situation. So, yes. So 
two years ago, I think yesterday, you tested positive for COVID. So take us take us through some of the journey from there. Yeah, actually, a couple of things. Yes. So am I, what I think was my confirmed exposure to it was March 8th, two years ago. I was in New York City at dance rehearsal. Um, and then I started to get symptomatic on March 16th. I, so I am in Northern New Jersey and I work in Northern New Jersey and New York City. So I'm sure I was exposed to it all over the place two years ago. Um, but that's the only known one that I had. So initially that first week was just being run down, body aches, nerve pain, like any of the nerve tension tests were really positive for me. I didn't have a fever, but I felt like I did. Like I would have bet money that I had a fever, but I never did. And as that week progressed, I started to get like some shortness of breath and like some chest burning. I would describe it as like, if you full out summer runner, if you full out sprint, like that burning, I would get a lot. Um, and after the sixth day, I was like, oh, I'm past it. Like the body aches, just that sick feeling had cleared. So I thought it was good. And then it just got so much worse. It got to the point with breathing, I would get winded and fatigued, like doing something like this going up the stairs, attempting to exercise. Um, I had, I just started a new job at that point. So I didn't have a baseline to compare it to with work, but it was really hard for me to learn new things for my job. If it was computer-based, especially. And then as, so for work, I was um, working from home for the first two months because of the pandemic. And once we were allowed, to, I'm with employer clients. It's sort of like an industrial setting. Um, once we were allowed to get back on site, it just <laughs> it got bad fast because I didn't know about that how much the cognitive demands would be for me. I was meeting lots of new people. It's a really challenging job. I'm outside a lot. So I was dealing with the heat. I didn't know at that point I had autonomic dysfunction. So my autonomic system is not able to regulate, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature. Um, and things just kept getting worse from there. And thankfully uh, PTs from the myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue community had DM'd me on Twitter, seeing my tweets to say, you know, you don't sound okay. Here's what we think is going on. Um, and gave me some really good recommendations. And I had to so I had been trying to run. I'd been trying to keep dancing and exercise and it just was miserable. So I ended up having to stop. I thought I could take a week off of running. This is now the end of August. I thought I could take a week off and I would be fine. And I still have not returned to running. I try here and there and it, I just tried on Saturday and it doesn't go well at all. Um, I'm learning how to monitor symptoms and manage them. So like with the autonomic dysfunction, like I have compression socks on right now. I'm always making sure I'm getting electrolytes and staying really hydrated just to try to kind of like help with the blood pressure. Um, I have to like, say for this as an example, no one's going to do this today. Like making sure I have a little bit of time after to like, just kind of let my brain rest. It's so complicated. There's, I made a list the other day for the San Diego pain summit of all the things that I try to do to try to manage the symptoms. So sometimes it's tricky because I don't know if to say like, I'm actually physiologically getting better or I'm just getting better at managing the symptoms. Cause there are some people who have reported that they've recovered fully. Some people say they're recovered, but and then they still have symptoms or like me where I say, I think I still have stuff going on. So sort of a surprise every day. We don't always know what it's going to feel like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like really drastically changed. Um, not only how I work, but how I'm able to just have fun, hang out, do things. I, I can't really run or dance that much anymore. That's a lot. That's it. That's yeah. The past two years have been crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know that just through our conversations through the years that dance is a huge part of your life. You're an instructor and you've been, you know, doing multiple shows. One of the ones that you mentioned here that it was hard for you to learn new tasks at work. Was that because you were tired or because there was like some sort of mental fog? That's a great question. Both. Um, so one, I wasn't appreciating, especially in the beginning that I was getting fatigued because I've had mono before. So I was like, it's not that level of fatigue. I was just a little you know, off and I thought maybe it was pandemic stress kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I definitely have cognitive dysfunctions. I know that now I thought 
um, like I had was developing ADHD and dyslexia, which I've never had a problem before. Even just learning a new EMR compared to my last job, just <laughs> so difficult. And it's actually an easier system to use. Um, yeah, so that's all the cognitive dysfunction that we're seeing. Um, that seems to be really common. Like a, a really, I tell the story often that I have a friend who's a PT in a skilled nursing facility and she's in her early forties and she thought she started to develop dementia. And like, she knows dementia because she sees it all the time. And it's, it's frightening and just, yeah, just things were not clicking like early in the pandemic my dance rehearsals were on Zoom and I couldn't learn the choreography. And I've never had a problem picking up choreography before. And it, it changes day to day. Sometimes I'm very sharp and some days it like takes me a minute. So I have to write a lot of things down. If it's something new, make sure I write everything down. When I was learning how to do Google sites, which isn't that complicated, I felt like I was back in statistics class <laughs> trying to learn SPSS. It's, yeah, so it varies from day to day. So there's, there's obviously a lot going on. Like you said, you're still still learning. You're still in the process. You you feel like you still have symptoms going on. And, you know, I mentioned kind of started off with this is you're just out of shape, right? Because in a secondary setting, the most thing we're going to hear from a, a coach, oh, well, he just hasn't done anything for three weeks. Of course, he's going to be out of breath. So let's go ahead and then jump right into you're just out of shape. Yeah. This is great. Um, this is so common within athletics, even people with like industrial kind of jobs, dancers, military, um, law enforcement, all of that physically demanding things. So, and I've come across, I'll start with a couple of papers that were in JAT and I just listened to JAT podcasts about return to play just from like just COVID in general returning. And the focus was on like, yeah, deconditioning, monitor heart rate, look at how their heart rate's dropping when they decrease, when they stop activity, which is looking for those normal responses. But what we see now with long COVID, and we know this from other post-viral illnesses like myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, is there, I think of it as like the aerobic system is broken. <laughs> it's not working properly anymore. So you will see, I'll use me as an example, but this is true for so many of us that like, you know, I kept trying to exercise. It wasn't getting better. It wasn't like if you, you literally are deconditioned, you just got to, you know, do a little bit more every day, trying to progress exercise. You'll see the person, they will crash. They will be so much worse. And not just in that immediate, like short-term, like when they finish working out or like a DOMS kind of thing, but for days, maybe even weeks that they are not recovered from that workout. And we know from myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, there, if you, not that ATs have to do this, but if you did cardiopulmonary exercise testing, there's a protocol people with this will do worse on day two. So you'll see typical people who are just either deconditioned or just, you don't have, don't have anything going on. You test them on a treadmill day one, day two, they're doing about the same. Maybe they're a little sore, but it's not a huge difference. People that are going through the post-viral illness, like long COVID will perform so much worse and will actually have sick kind of symptoms. So not just muscle soreness, but they'll, they'll have headaches. They'll have horrible fatigue with the autonomic dysfunction that could cause more of like the profuse sweating that we get temperature intolerance. And when I say fatigue, it's like, literally you can't get up. It's not just that you're a little tired, like you didn't sleep enough before, or it's just, you know, things are busy. Like it is so much worse than the fatigue I had with mono. So it's like some of the big things you're looking at. And I think what's challenging, especially in the secondary setting, when you have kids, they might not be able to verbalize. Like I couldn't verbalize well. Like I would just say my body can't process things. Like it just didn't feel right. And they might not be able to distinguish between I'm just deconditioned for whatever reason, or I'm actually sick. As a runner, I knew something was off because obviously in PT and in AT, I know the difference of what it feels like to be sick versus, you know, just out of shape a little bit, but the response to exercise was not correct. And what we'll see too, and um, if somebody has a wearable, I know not everybody does, or if you can monitor the heart rate with a pulse ox or just manually check, the heart rate will not match what they're doing. 
So for me, I can go up a flight of stairs and my heart rate's 120. When I shower, it's 150. That's insane. I used to be able to run at 120, no problem. So you're looking for like responses that don't make sense. Somebody's getting really, really winded and it's not coming down and they just did something light. It's not going to be necessarily easy to pick up on like, oh, just look at this test and this is how you differentiate. But over time, you're going to see like, are they responding well to exercise? Are they improving the way you would expect? Like you see someone in a preseason, maybe they come in a little out of shape, things are getting better. Or do they actually seem like they're getting sick from exercise? Not an easy sell for coaches. I will say that <laughs> it's definitely not an easy sell because we don't have a set test. There isn't a specific diagnostic for long COVID. You can't show them a blood test or an x-ray or something like that. It's just going off of the symptoms. All right. So you, you've already talked to a group of athletic trainers in, in New Jersey mm-hmm. there. Um, and I'm sure, you know, some, some more questions have come up here about this. And um, a lot of kids do have wearables, but I know that you actually have like two or three that you've been using to kind of like cross-check. So tell me a little bit about that process that you've been doing there. Yeah. Early, I, this funny, I ended up having to stop that just because one broke. <laughs> but yeah, so um, it was interesting to see because they were, I have a Garmin and I used to wear a Fitbit that the heart rates weren't exactly the same, but it was the same common trend where you could see like, if I would go up a flight of stairs, like my heart rate was spiking, or if I was in the shower, my heart rate would spike. And you could see too, that my, my resting heart rate was rising quicker than what you would expect for just stopping to exercise, which is like an interesting thing. If you just look at me at rest, like there's a good, like there was a 20 beat difference within like a month or two, which for me was a lot. Some of the neat things with the wearables so specifically at my job at Proactivity, we actually have a dashboard for it called Scissors, a C-I-S-R-S. And there's, so there's a lot of neat stuff we could do with the basic Garmin data. But what I um, will start to look at is if I do an activity, literally, I will walk up the stairs and check my heart rate because sometimes I can feel it and sometimes I can't always tell. Um, or if I start to feel like we were talking about this right before we recorded, if I have adrenaline surges, that's the best way to explain it. I can lie down and have my legs elevated because that helps with autonomic dysfunction and it won't drop the way you would expect it'll stay kind of hovering in the seventies where it hopefully like should be in the fifties. And it, the wearables are great too, to look at HRV. Um, so with heart rate variability, you know, if you are just, you know, better shape, better condition, your HRV should be high, not as good shape. It'll be lower. If you're in a sympathetic, stressful environment, HRV goes down. If you're nice and relaxed, it goes up. So my Garmin does a stress score is what they call it based on HRV. And that will be, I will be in a huge sympathetic response when I'm, you know, not doing much of anything that happens a lot when I'm driving. I think because it's cognitively demanding and I'm sitting in a dependent position with the autonomic dysfunction. Um, so it's trying to find patterns and trends with them. And it's not, this is not a confirmed science. It's not definite. It, it actually changes for me. It changes for everybody. But it's trying to pick up on trends with the wearables. And you could do that with the athletes. Is, you know, pull up the app and just see if there's things that you're noticing. Like I stopped wearing mine in the shower. I tried a little bit, but it throws off all my data because my heart rate shoots up, my HR is dropping down, but it's things like that they're trying to look for with the patterns to see if it helps. I'll make a note with this too that, so I, many of us use wearables for the opposite of their intention. You know, the goal is to promote you moving, get more steps, you know, more intensity in minutes, more stairs. I use it to see if I'm taking too many steps. <laughs> if I have any intensity minutes, if my heart rate's going up too much, if I'm doing too many flights of stairs. And then they're also designed for healthy people to kind of stay healthy. So they're not always particularly great. Um, for, an, for a population that has a chronic condition. But there are those things I mentioned that you can look at to try to help and like pick up on things. Yeah, hey, you need to get up and move now. Move now. Yeah, no. Uh, no I, I <laughs> it was actually <laughs> just so there enough. No. <laughs> and that's, it's tricky. And so I had to set like, you can put an alarm on it that if your heart rate goes above a certain, whatever you decide at rest, it'll give you an alarm. So I had that. One of the recommendations from myogic encephalomyelitis is to not go above 55% of your resting heart rate. 
So for me, that's a hundred. That's not much. I already told you it goes above that, just doing daily things. Um, but teaching people like how to use them to just kind of check in and see where you're at. Or I'll give you guys a quick story. At ATSNJ, um, the secondary school AT had mentioned that she has a high school athlete, a teenager who noticed her Apple watch was going off because her heart rate was going to 180 when she was sitting in class, just sitting, not doing anything, not stressed out. And the parents weren't sold on it. They're like, oh, maybe it's the watch is um, malfunctioning. I'm like, oh no, that is a thing that could be autonomic dysfunction. So it's also asking people about that. Are you getting alerts when you shouldn't be? And not trying to just say, oh, it's just nothing. It's just a mistake that that actually might be recording something. Hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> make it just, just um, simple as you can. <clears throat> what are some of the things that I really need to look at for my athletes that are coming in? I know you said if they're just two or three or four days for their, their doms or soreness or whatever, or they're just dragging or if they're getting sick from exercise, but what are some of the things that I really need to look at as yeah. a, you know, secondary or even collegiate athletic trainer? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. There's some really big ones. And what's tricky with this is that Symptoms can be for so many different reasons within long COVID or completely unrelated. Again, it's not concrete definite. So it's having to look at the whole picture, not just look at one symptom, but I can't stress it like the crippling fatigue, like literally cannot get up. I, I stress this so much to everybody because it's horrible. Um, and so we have what's called post-exertional symptom exacerbation, PESE, or sometimes you'll see post-exertional malaise in the chronic fatigue literature, but just that with, like we were touched on with activity and it could be physical like sports, it could be cognitive, like school, it could be social interactions, make symptoms worse that they physically feel sick. And again, it's dry. It could drag on for a couple of days, even weeks. We call them crashes. It could take a, a while to come out of, um, we'll see breathing pattern disorders. So if you're just talking to someone like this, just restful, casual talking. And you're seeing, you know, that they're having to really breathe heavy, like if they were working out or you can hear that they're gasping for breaths. Like when I, I still get breathless, you'll hear like, I can't get many syllables out <laughs> in a breath. So you're trying to pick up on that as you're just like casually talking to them. We'll see with some people mast cell activation syndrome, which can be post-viral and it's really complicated, but it is like a low grade um, inflammatory response. So you'll see people, my, so you'll see people who like for me, my wearable will cause like a slight little rash on my skin, which never used to happen. I don't have any kind of allergy sensitive anything. People will have like total body rashes. They'll have weird new food allergies and things that like can't be otherwise explained. Again, that could be many things, but that's just kind of something. If all of a sudden there's a new onset of like allergies, um, that, that might, it might be from long COVID and the autonomic dysfunction. Again, that's a big one. It's estimated, um, from Dysautonomia International, which is a big organization, at least 50% of people at long COVID will have autonomic dysfunction. So the heart rate's doing really funky things. The blood pressure's doing funky things. A poor um, tolerance to heat. And this is actually a really good point for ATs. Th there isn't evidence on this, but I have a feeling. Um, I'm curious if the heat intolerance is increasing risk for heat illness and whether you're playing sports or you know working in a hot environment. Because I can tell you for me and many of my friends now with this, like, just being in calm heat, like 70, 80 degrees is a lot. You'll see heart rates will spike, HRV will start going down. Um, I used to be able to sit outside and forever. I love being in hot weather, going running in hot weather. I can't tolerate it anymore. And that's an easy thing to try to attribute to being deconditioned. We see that all the time in July and August when kids come back, but that could be a heat intolerance from long COVID. Um, there's even, there's an AT that I know who has long COVID that they are from the deep South, live there their whole life and message me one day to ask, is heat intolerance a thing because I can't tolerate the heat anymore from somebody who is from the deep South, who has been there for a couple of decades and that, you know, things like that, that kind of make you take a step back 
Again, there's, there are over 200 symptoms documented in the literature, which is wild. Um, so it's just kind of being open to it. If something doesn't seem right, you're like, I know this kid, that's kind of strange. That's not a normal response to something that's happening. You can start thinking long COVID. And like I mentioned before, it might not be confirmed with a test. So a couple of like key points on this. One, like for me, for those of us who got sick in the beginning two years ago, there were no tests available or we didn't qualify for tests. We didn't have like this, the right symptoms at that point. Some people might have a negative test just based on when you tested. I got COVID again in December. My Before I was symptomatic, but I knew I was exposed, my first rapid test was negative. You know, it was too early. So it could be the timing of the test. And even with antibody tests, many of us have negative antibody tests. And that, that's a theory that maybe we didn't produce enough antibodies and that's why we have long COVID. So you can't necessarily rely on like any kind of confirmed test and say, oh, you had a negative COVID test. This can't be long COVID because there are even people who are asymptomatic. Either we know they were asymptomatic because they had to get tested for some reason, or there are people who maybe they had a known exposure, didn't have a test. And then a couple months later, these symptoms start to pop up. That's the tricky part. It's, this does not follow any fun pattern necessarily. It's, I meet people all the time that, you know, it kind of just have to be open-minded and say, this could be long coded. So interesting that you talk about the, the skin irritation on the wrist, because I have to switch them like between my left and my right all the, all the time right now, because I get it to where it irritates the skin on my wrist. Nope. And then, you know, I just figured maybe that's cause I don't know, cause I'm sweating. So it could be that, <clears throat> but it, it seems like pretty consistent now. And I've worn a like a heart rate monitoring watch for the last uh like five years and i've never really had that issue before and so there's weird things like that and you know it could be a million reasons but for me like i I never had any skin sensitivity and knowing with the mast cell activation syndrome like this low grade like anaphylactic response that happens little things like that it could be related to long covid Yep. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you just talked about heat exertion coming back in July and in August. You know, at this point, we're yeah. kind of wrapping up our year. Most of our sports are done. Um, so as we kind of move towards that preparing for next year, what are some of your thoughts or um, concerns, considerations as far as we return to play from COVID? And then also, how can we help protect those athletes as they return um, to sport in, in that heat? Yeah. So first with the, you know, with the general return to play. So there are a handful of different like return to play protocols, like what you'd see with other like injuries or illnesses. And from the, and these are all coming up from like sports medicine types of organizations and journals from what I've seen, at least like six of them don't touch on long COVID at all. And they'll put athletes in like the mild, moderate, severe, you know, kind of designation. Oh, if you're mild, good to go kind of thing, or maybe if it was moderate or severe acutely, you need cardiac testing, which is fair. I, will, I do want to bring that up that it is important if, if people have symptoms to specifically test for cardiac things, which is a whole other story. But we can't assume that if somebody had a mild case, that, meaning they didn't have to go to the hospital in the beginning, that they're okay and could just follow this like generic protocol. Because again, it could be all over the place. Somebody could be fine for a few months and all of a sudden symptoms are popping up, which is really difficult. So if you are looking at one of those protocols, you really have to keep that in mind. And whether it's you, you suspect or you know they have long COVID or they just had COVID in general and you're just you know trying to per- ease them in, not only considering the general where they like decondition because they're off for a little bit, decondition earlier because we were quarantined, risk for musculoskeletal injury, you know, returning back, but just kind of being aware of things that are going on and knowing that those protocols do not touch on long COVID and there is no set protocol for it. You're really just having to watch the person it's very symptom titrated. So it's not to say that they're bad necessarily. You just really, I always want to put an asterisk on the bottom and say, but... 
this does not apply to long COVID. If you just are looking at that and you're not aware of the other symptoms, if you're looking for the breathing symptoms or cardiac things, that's important, but you would miss all the cognitive ones. You would miss the um, autonomic dysfunction possibly. You might miss the, the muscle activation sy syndrome kind of thing. So if it's really, really keep an open mind and look at that whole person. And then as kids are getting back in, if they have time off in the summer, you know, they're easing back in, especially if you're in hotter areas, but this could also be in like North where I am. Just watch the heat, like don't assume, and we should know this anyway from heat stroke, but don't assume if they're just like, oh, I'm a little hot, I'm a little tired that, oh, you just need to, you know, keep going, keep pushing, you're soft, whatever that no, they, pull them out for a little bit. Just kind of keep an eye on them, check their heart rate, like actively monitor their heart rate. If you can't stay with them, cause I know there's a lot of kids like full socks, um, to see what's happening because that could be that heat intolerance, which can be really, really serious, obviously potentially heat stroke but also can set them back horribly in terms of long COVID symptoms, which you really don't want to get into that realm where you're just pushing through. Take this for me, who did that? You don't want to keep pushing through it. It will get worse and we don't know if it's going to get better. So it's just really, just be open. <laughs> when kids are saying they don't feel great, we know there's many reasons why, but especially if you know they have COVID, watch them in the heat, have all the water and the ice and the shade and all of those things available because it could be just that they're deconditioned, they're not acclimated. It could be that it's coming from long COVID. And even to actually, I should add this also, with the cognitive dysfunction that can happen. So some sports say like, you know, I run, it's, there's not a ton of cognitive demand necessarily, especially if you're not racing, you're just going. But if you have sports, it's a field sport, there's plays going on, you know, there's collision sports, there's people coming at you. There's so much cognitive demand with that. So if they're already physically taxed, just playing the sport and you're adding a cognitive component. And if there might be a safety component, again, collision sports, there may be something like gymnastics, cheering, where, you know, there's a big safety component, action sports, that can also be really draining. So the kids might do okay early on in say preseason, just getting back to jogging and like conditioning. But once you actually get into like full play, it might be too much, not only physical, but because there's now a really big cognitive demand with it. And that's a, that's a lot of really good things to, to consider. And one of the things kind of on the same line is just recently I went to the Tufts, which is the team up for sports safety. It was kind of, it was hosted by the Corey Stringer Institute and the group that I was in, uh, we were talking about, they were talking about heat exertion, heat, uh, heat illness. And they said that at the, at the 90 minute mark, it almost like exponentially goes up the occurrence of heat illness. And so that's another thing we could potentially look for, you know, it's just, begin the conversations with your, uh, athletic directors, whatever, say, Hey, can we l limit the practices to 90 minutes or let's do the hard work. And then after 90 minutes, we'll do the walkthrough type things, those things where they have the cool down. Cause then it all, if we can prevent overall heat illness, it all, it'll also help with those kids that are struggling with COVID with, with long COVID and that kind of thing as well. So that was something that was really cool. Yeah. That's a good point. Be, yeah. It's got to be a with the autonomic dysfunction too, with this heat intolerance and all the crazy heart rate, blood pressure things, um, there's a component of rehab um, that you'll see with some PTs and OTs that's looking at, like trying to, it's not a set protocol necessarily, but trying to help with the autonomic dysfunction. And this is way before you get to maybe try formal exercise or sports, which is way down the line too. There's a whole mess, uh, mess of things that have to happen first, just so you know. So trying to help the autonomic system figure itself out again, but we don't actually know right now, you know, is, are people going to make a full recovery for that? And that could be I think this is interesting with sports because people previously who had a post-viral illness and now have all these, because this is, again, we see this with other conditions too. They probably self-selected out of harder sports would self-select out of physically demanding jobs because it's not possible. Now we have 
tons of previously healthy, fit young people who all of a sudden are dealing with all these things that maybe we as ATs didn't see before because that's just you know not what we would see. Somebody who's really struggling with their heart rate is going to rest is really going to struggle than trying to play sports. So this could be like I'm recognizing probably like a really big thing for a lot of ATs to see. All right. So obviously we're coming off of like a mental health awareness in society. So five months ago, we took in our second foster child. And so we have now have a, a as of right now, 11, nine, seven, and then a three and almost two year old. And so adding in that, that, which is the number four place, but the fifth child, like it was really draining. And I think for me, I didn't realize recently until just recently, like the last maybe couple of weeks, like just mentally how draining it was. And <clears throat> you know, just the adapting to having a new three-year-old in your household. And, you know, then there's all this stuff with people coming off of COVID. And my wife talks about, you know, I think during COVID there's the mental health. And so, so it's really difficult to, to say, okay, well, is this exhaustion, this mental fog coming from COVID? Is it coming from the yeah. being quarantined? Is it coming from all the stress and the changes? But then again, at the same time, it's, if we're thinking about it, we're having that conversation, we're at least saying, Hey, there's a lot going on. Let's look at this option of long COVID. Did the kid have it untested or whatever? We go from there. <clears throat> so yeah, that's a great point. Talk mm -hmm. to the athletic trainer that's struggling with their own long COVID. Yes. Oh, love that you said this. This is so important. So I'll start with, um, so you mentioned it before on Twitter, I've been tracking everything I've been going through publicly to help other people. So through that long story short, uh, we have an international association called Long COVID Physio. It started with me and a physiotherapist PT in the UK, Darren Brown, tweeting saying we should do something. And that is snowball now. So we have PTs, OTs, ATs, speech, all kinds of allied healthcare professionals in this group, specifically if you have long COVID. So we have a Facebook group, so peer support, um, which is really helpful. Anybody going through this, um, hopefully not, but if you are, it's it's been immensely helpful to have other people in healthcare to talk to about it. Um, we, you know, we, we're not treating each other, but it's just to have people to, who understand because it is a, as I, every time I talk to people about it, it sounds so crazy, but it's real. Um, so that's really important. If anybody listening has it, long COVID physio, we have a private Facebook group only for allied healthcare professionals who have long COVID. Um, and then in terms of jobs, because the AT jobs are so demanding. And I think one of the hardest things is they can be unpredictable. You might have a general idea of your day, but you know, things pop up constantly. Emergencies, you know, literally happen. So the general recommendations are to stop rest and pace, and that's coming from the MECFS community. But we can't always do that in AT. We can't always do that in healthcare in general because we have jobs and people need help. But it's finding moments when you can to rest. You might not be able to sleep all the time when you need, but at least to sit. Like I make it a point for me in the clinic and with employer clients to sit when I can, because at least that's a little less taxing. Um, to be a little bit better with even diet and like nutrition and everything. Like I mentioned earlier electrolytes and staying really hydrated help and trying to, it's a weird mix because I eat processed things to get the salt, but then I have to make sure I'm eating all my fruits and vegetables just as a general decrease in the inflammation in my body. Um, and it's also having to advocate for yourself. You know, we're all as ATs in so many settings where coaches, admins are like, you know, this is what it is. Last minute things are thrown on you. Oh yeah. By the way, we're doing this in an hour, get ready. And it might be having to advocate for yourself a little bit earlier than later and say, you know, here's kind of what I'm dealing with. Maybe you're not comfortable disclosing all the information, which is fine. But, you know, we can't do this. And this is not, you know, anyway, they shouldn't be throwing stuff on us all the time. But starting to recognize, like, 
what are better times during the day? And maybe you could pick up on why, like maybe the morning's really great because you just slept. Um, what are harder times during the day? It might be after practices because you're exhausted because you're just, you know, lugging all the coolers and the kids and you just took care of a lot of kids kind of thing and seeing then, all right, so how can I work with this? Like I will sit down with my own, like look at my own schedule and find moments. When can I rest? What are going to be the really difficult parts in the day? Or say, you know, you're covering like a big tournament, like it's gonna be really busy this coming weekend. Can you rest a little bit leading up to it? And you have some downtime afterwards to try to recover because it is, if you just keep pushing through all the symptoms to a degree, you can, things will get worse. I, there are not a ton of things you know about long COVID, but I can tell you things will get worse if you keep pushing through. There are ATs that I've talked to in different settings who have had to go on temporary disability and not work just because the symptoms were so bad, particularly with that kind of job, a little different than say you had like a desk job or working from home. I know that's not always possible with employers, um, but trying to see if you can get them on board, if you have their ear and that they're understanding what you're going through and if there's ways to, you know, to work with what you're doing. So you're not in a position that you just have to like keep pushing through and get worse. So I was talking to you, Daria, just before we started and talking about how right here behind me, um, there's a, there's a hole in the wall and <laughs> it's because we just said, Hey, can we do this? Right. And, and it's been something that, you know, just slow changes and you just have to ask. And so I think that's an important thing is just have that conversation. You have to have that conversation. Nobody knows you're struggling if you don't tell them. Right. And so just, mm -hmm. just say, Hey, I had COVID. Hey, I'm you know having trouble breathing. Or even if you, you know, I think when we talked with Daniel Bellamy, he said question without questioning, Hey, how do you do this? So you say, Hey, uh, head coach, have you had you know, I know you had COVID. Have you been struggling with catching your breath? And me too, you know, that kind of thing. And so I guess inviting them into the conversation by mm -hmm. letting them share their story, that kind of thing, just let them know you're struggling. So that's really good because if you don't tell somebody, they're not going to know. And then it's just going to be more of the burden on you mentally and physically. And you're not going to be able to catch your breath and be able to take care of the people you're trying to take care of, but more importantly, take care of yourself. Yeah. And I, that's great. And I look at this too, because it, it's funny to me that like not everyone knows about long COVID because this is my entire world. <laughs> um, but a lot of people still don't know in healthcare or otherwise, they, they just generally don't know. So I will meet people who are interested and like, oh, tell me a little bit. And sometimes people, if, if I don't know them personally, they're like, can I ask you a question? Like for me, that's fine. Like ask whatever you want. I'm like an open book, but you'll find that too. And it's a good opportunity to like educate other people because I stumble on people all the time who have long COVID who don't realize they're just like, oh yeah, you know, I just, I had COVID and then I just keep getting winded. I had COVID and like, yeah, I have these weird allergies or I had COVID and I always, I, can't, I always get winded going up the stairs. I'm laughing because people tell me this all the time um, and they don't know. And there's a whole range where some people have like mild, I hate to say that, but like mild kind of COVID symptoms and they could for the most part function and some people who are literally bed bound, there's a big range in that. And again, we don't necessarily know why, you know, one happens versus the other, but people, it's been interesting. People are very open to learning about it. And for me, the more people I interact with, whether I know them like really personally in my life or just, you know, through social media or professionally, whatever, know to check in with me too. Like if I do a thing, like, are you okay with this? <laughs> do you need to sit down? How are things going? Um, you know, which is really appreciate. Like I, I lectured for an AT program once and I literally like ran in my door from work, sat down, like, you know, ready to go. But they knew like, you know, I needed a minute. <laughs> um, so it's, it's weird at first to, when you're, I think when you're in healthcare, you used to being the helper, you're the one people come to. And now the, that role switches, but it is such a beast of a chronic illness. And there's so much we don't know about it that you cannot do this alone, like at all. <laughs> and it, it, whether you have your own like healthcare team, your physicians and stuff you go to, peer support, I cannot stress that enough for everybody. If you have long COVID, please join our group if you're in healthcare um, or just general people that you interact with every day because people are 
willing to help and for the most part willing to listen. It's unfortunate, you know, things are politicized and all. Um, but for the most part, people are really willing to listen. And at least then I think too, for me, it helps because I worry if I'm out of breath with somebody and like, cause they think I'm like out of shape and I'm not a good PT or AT, you know, or I tell people, so if I'm in an N95 in the clinic and I sometimes have to like, and I have to say, I'm not sighing at you. Like, so, you know, I'm not mad at you. I'm not annoyed. I just need to breathe for a second. Or if it takes me a minute to like, remember something, it's not that I'm zoning out and I don't care. It just, my brain needs a second. So people seem to have been like really understanding of that, which then hopefully they learn a little bit. And then, you know, they're more receptive with other people also. Part of the reason I love doing this podcast is because of conversations like this. There's so much I learned so much, you know, like, oh, hey, I got this rash on my wrist from my watch that I haven't ever had before. Right. Just, just random stuff. And, um, the, you presented twice and in New Jersey and in San Diego, and you also have a course on MedBridge. So, oh, actually, let me interrupt. Quick. So the course is I just I am like featured in it for like a little bit. So this is actually good for everyone to know if anyone wants to like read up on all of this. So there's a physical therapist, Todd Davenport, who is in California, and he works clinically and academically and does research, and he specializes in chronic fatigue. So long COVID for many people looks like chronic fatigue. I'm always hesitant to say it is. There's still a lot we have to learn, but it presents very similar. Um, so he already has like a wealth of knowledge on this. So he has a brand new, this just went up in the past week course, on, the first course of a few on long COVID. So he was really great and interviewed me and three other people from our long COVID physio executive board. He's also on the executive board to get the patient perspective. And that's been so important in this because unfortunately, many times in healthcare, it gets this paternalistic, like, oh, we're the clinician. We know better, you know? And now patients are the one, I didn't say this before, I should have, patients are the one who started this. We weren't being heard two years ago. We kept saying, we're not better. It's been two weeks, like you said, and I'm not better. I'm so much worse than I was. Why aren't you listening? So we all said, all right, we're going to do this ourselves then. So there literally are patients who have started studies, which is amazing. Um, Like I said, with long COVID physio, we started as peer support, but now we do education and advocacy. We're involved in research, we're involved in policy, we're involved with the World Health Organization, like incredible things are going on. that's all like been a result of this. So yeah, that's it. So going back, MedBridge, yeah. So that's Todd's course. I was really lucky to be like featured on. And there will be a couple more coming up. All right. So I guess if you go to MedBridge and search long COVID, that'd be the best way to find that? I don't know long COVID. I know if you search COVID, it comes up. There are a few oh. courses that are there. And his, when I searched it, it's the last one that comes up. But Todd Davenport. And if you go on PubMed and if you're interested and look up his research related to ME and CFS, a lot of it applies to what we're seeing now with long COVID. Very good. Very good. All right. And then the two presentations you did in, mm-hmm. like I said, in San Diego and then in New, New, Jer- New Jersey, were those roughly the same talks or um, the same audience? Different. Very different. That's a good question. So I'll start with the ATSNJ. They were fabulous. That was the science. I got like right into what we know, what you need to look at, how to assess where, how to management, a lot of science. I'll talk about me a little bit, but lots of science. Versus the San Diego Pain Summit is really neat. I just read PT Sandy Hill and gave a really good uh, description of it. It's more of a thinky kind of conference, not a hands-on, what do I do, you know, kind of conference. It's very cerebral, which I love. Um, So they're big on getting the patient perspectives. So I spoke both as a patient and a clinician. So I went over some of the science. I didn't have to go too in-depth with the post-exertional symptom exacerbation because Todd Davenport spoke spoke right after me about all of that, which is great because it's a big topic. Um, But I talked a lot about my lived experience. And so not just here's a list of symptoms, like here's how they affect me. Like as a person, here's what I'm going through. Here are the struggles that I have. Um, I got into, like I said earlier, you know, different ways I'm trying to manage the symptoms and things that we're dealing with as healthcare um, clinicians and as researchers and educators, what we're dealing with from our own colleagues sometimes. 
like actually in both presentations, I think I brought up, um, I was interviewed, me and Darren Brown, our long COVID physio chair, were interviewed in the Atlantic Magazine by Ed Young, who's a journalist who got a Pulitzer for his coverage of the pandemic, specifically about healthcare workers not being believed by our own healthcare colleagues about our symptoms. So that, that's a whole thing I go into a lot too. So the San Diego Pain Summit was perfect to talk about my lived experience in addition to the science. So very cool. Yeah, I know you said, I know you got some feedback on social media from people just saying, hey, thanks yeah. for sharing your, your experience. So congratulations there on that. And thanks. And I know it's just out of a heart for sharing and not, not that you're seeking praise, but very cool. Yes, that's been a neat thing to see. Um, so my professionally, you know, typically in orthopedics, I see some patients with some long-term conditions and you know, I'm an industrial setting construction workers. So really being immersed in this like chronic illness community is really brand new to me. And that's what I've learned from other people with whether they have a chronic illness or their clinicians who work with people, chronic illnesses is to tell your story, get your story out, be heard. And I'm in a position as an AT and PT, I can, you know, I have a little platform. I can be a voice and say, unfortunately, if whatever clinician isn't listening to this patient, maybe they'll listen to me more because I can talk a little bit of the science and the healthcare with them too. And I recognize that not everybody with long COVID is comfortable being public about it. I know plenty of healthcare workers who will DM me privately and just choose not to speak about it, choose not to be in our group, which is understandable, but I am comfortable with it. So I figure I might as well use the voice that I have and try to educate people on it. And then also let people know that they're not alone and there's other people going through it. Yeah, it, it is such an interesting thing because just recently, um, I'm going to come back to this just a second, but just recently um, I've been sharing about, you know, our foster care and that kind of things. And so some of the athletic trainers that are foster parents as well have been reaching out, hey, thanks for mm -hmm. sharing your story. Thanks for, you know, being an encouragement. Thanks for what you do, that kind of thing. And it's just like, well, I'm put here at this time for this reason to help encourage mm -hmm. people. And so um, yeah. I, th I think you kind of covered this, but Ryan Stevens from right there in your neck of the woods said, what opportunities exist for athletic trainers to further dive into this and expand our understanding? Ooh, good question. So I'm going to plug long COVID physio again, because we're wonderful. <laughs> um, but on our website, that's longcovid.physio, super straightforward. We have a ton of free resources available, which is I think important because they're super excited. Also, so accessible because they're free and accessible in terms of people with disabilities. Our website covers if you need to change like font sizes and you know that kind of stuff. If you have any kind of um, disability, that's also up there. Um, but if you look under our work, we have links to the things we've been involved in. So any other podcast we've been on, um, any conference talks, the San Diego Pain Summit is up there. That one is free to access. Those are there. You can see um, our published work in journals and our blogs coming from journals, websites. And under... Um, trying to remember now resources I think there's pages so there would be one on long COVID with exercise one on long COVID and heart rate monitoring and there's all different topics that are in there too because this is a really broad topic so you could pick if there's a certain part you want to learn about go into resources and you'll see those pages that are up there and that's probably especially working in rehab that's probably like one of the best resources I know we're a little biased but it's really great we have and we everything is updated regularly like not maybe not daily but almost close to daily so everything is really current because research comes out almost every day. It is wild how fast research is coming out. There's has to be at least a hundred journal articles that came out on long COVID just this year. So two and a half months in. Um, Medbridge, which I know you have your code, which is great. Um, Todd's course is phenomenal. And I don't know if everyone knows this, but for COVID, um, all of the journal articles are free to access. So I know sometimes we get stuck if you're not at a university or a hospital or somewhere that has subscriptions, you can go on PubMed and access everything, which is really great. Um, I would say look predominantly like at like the PT literature and even OT. I haven't come across anything yet AT-wise with long COVID, but those are going to be the good ones because they get into all of the um, 
into the rehabilitation like kind of things. And then Twitter has been really great. It always, I always feel like it sounds weird to say that because you think of social media is just, you know, fun, but it's been amazing with long COVID. So you could look at like hashtag long COVID. Um, my handles on tap physio. And from there you could, you know, with all the people I follow, but one example, um, David Petrino, who is at Mount Sinai in New York City, they're one of the leading experts on long COVID rehabilitation. They stepped up like immediately um, two years ago. So he tweets a lot of great things. If you look up David Petrino, it's P-U-T-R-I-N-O. On YouTube, there's some really great interviews with him too. Um, so those are some really good options. So please, if you have any questions too, because there's so many in my head right now, you can all feel free to like DM me and let me know. Um, and like there's currently, they're outside of like MedBridge, there aren't a ton of like great courses if you're interested in CEUs. Some of them I've looked at and like, that's not going in the right direction. Like they're pushing exercise. We know exercise is dangerous or pushing cognitive behavioral therapy, which doesn't get at the underlying problem. But I'll make an exciting announcement. Um, in September, we're going to have a virtual long COVID physio conference that is going to be hosted through Rocky Mountain University. So it will have CEUs available. So more information will be coming out on that in the next couple of months. So that'll be there too. Very cool. Very cool. So longcovid.physio, which I don't think I've ever seen a website with .physio. So, so longcovid.physio. And then you said David Petrino, that's P-A-T? P-U. He's a really great resource. Um, you can look on Twitter and there's some really amazing interviews with him on YouTube too. And from there, you can literally just go down the rabbit hole with <laughs> all the people to follow. If you look to on our website, the Long COVID Physio, our executive board under About Us, there most of us are very active on Twitter and share a lot of great information. Very cool. All right. Best way to contact you? Twitter. On tap physio. On physio. <laughs> I'm on Twitter often. <laughs> oh, and just in case anyone sees, I was, my account was suspended for a while. So I have on tap physio two. It was from videos or copyrighted music. Um, so on tap physio two is there. I use it a little bit, but on tap physio is the one that's best to contact me. Gotcha. All right. Anything you feel like we've missed that is an important piece of long COVID? <laughs> Yes, two quick things okay. um, I forgot to mention earlier. One, um, one of the common symptoms, I think everyone knows about this with COVID is loss of taste and smell. And people can have parosmia, which means that it can start to come back, but they have weird altered, like people will explain they smell burning, sulfur, sewage, just horrible things. They smell or taste it, which makes nutrition really difficult. Um, Cause people, you know, are like, oh, I just lost my smell. Like that's a major thing. So if you're working with anyone, but let alone a phys physically active population, you also have to consider, are they getting their nutrition in that they need to be able to do their sport, do their job, just maintain like a basic baseline life every day. So make sure you're not downplaying or like kids will joke about it, but that's actually serious. And there are young people who are really struggling to get in like their basic nutrition every day and have to have like insure shakes to try to get it. And then the last thing too, I like to stress this, um, long COVID is a mass disabling event. Like that sounds like I'm being like, dramatic, but I'm not, it is mass disabling. And we are just starting to see how badly this is going to affect everything. So on one end, um, like, I think that's a contributor to like the labor shortage and things because people physically can't return to their jobs. And you're going to see people who used to be able to do things and now they can't anymore. And there isn't necessarily help. It's not like you break a bone, you put a cast on or get surgery and you get better. So it's just it, know that it is coming. <laughs> it's already here, but we're going to start seeing, we're going to see it more and more and more. It is really concerning to see how large the estimated numbers are. It's up to 30% of people with COVID go on to long COVID. We don't know why. Um, so I always remind myself of like mass disabling event. Everybody knows someone with long COVID. You might not realize that they probably do. And people are going to start to be affected, whether it's going to school, just be able to sit in class. Think about like when kids have to return from a concussion, that return to learn, 
that kind of problem is happening now. People aren't able to just go out and socialize, talking about mental health. You can't do, say me, like I can't dance like I used to. I can't run. I can't just do the things that were stress relief. People are really, really struggling. And it's it affects so many aspects of your life. So you just have to like really recognize like how grave this situation is. Yeah. Sorry to end on a sad note. <laughs> nope, that's, that's, why I said, that's why I give you the last chance to throw out anything out there. The altered taste and smell thing is something that, I don't, I know I'd, I'd heard you lose it, but I hadn't heard that it was like altered. And, you know, just talking, I was talking with somebody just the other day and, you know, it was one of our coaches and he had it, um, six months ago, maybe. And he still is missing one of them, like taste or smell. And so it's, it's really just like, wow, really? Yeah. And we don't know. Back quick. Yeah. Some people it does. Some people have been well over a year that they don't have it. And there's people trying things like different, like smell therapies with like essential oils and stuff. That's not going to hurt you, but we don't know if it helps. And something just came out looking at, um, brain size changes, which is so sad. Um, but seeing changes like (laughs) in the olfactory part of your brain, that it's not just like at your nostrils, that it's actually like in your brain that there, that could be like where the problem is too. So it's not always just like, oh, let's practice smelling things. And like your brain actually can be altered and that's why you're having that problem. Yeah. And we don't know when, you know, if, when people get it back. Lots, lots of interesting conversations. <clears throat> All right. So my friend, Daria Oler, physical therapist, athletic trainer in the New Jersey area. She's spoken multiple times. Uh, she's part of longcovid.physio. So if you want to know more information about it, that's a great place to start is longcovid.physio. And again, just her sharing her experience helps so many different people uh, as she's done so much. So on Twitter, again, you can look at David, P-U-T-R-I-N-O, David Petrino, or you can find on tap physio, which is Daria there. So Daria, I appreciate you joining us and catching your breath a few times during the podcast, <laughs> making all the adjustments you had to make. This is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash long COVID. If you decide to go with MedBridge, you can use the code DSMB uh, and that'll get you a discount and helps benefit the podcast uh, and go from there. So check that out. If you're going to go through MedBridge or like she said, PubMed has research articles or start with longcovid.physio or look for the up t- upcoming you said september or november september september it should be the virtual long covid conference yes. so yes. for my friend across the country daria for jeremy the sports medicine broadcast that is a wrap thank you